Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A safe space for self-exploration, questioning the status quo, and finding out who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Our guest today is Rob Lawless, and if you're not yet familiar with Rob and his mission to spend an hour with 10,000 different people, I'm excited to introduce him and his work to you. Rob created Rob's 10K Friends with no particular motive other than to expand his own connections and open other people's minds to expanding theirs. With each meeting, there's no structure or agenda. It's simply two people getting to know each other. So with that in mind, rather than taking our usual approach to the interview, this episode is going to be a bit of a hybrid, taking a page from Rob's book and letting the conversation lead where it may without the typical structure. We connected when I randomly reached out to Rob after seeing his interview on The Kelly Clarkson Show, and I'm pumped to have him on the podcast today. Rob, why don't you share a quick summary of what inspired you to start Rob's 10K Friends and where you're currently in the process, and then we can learn a little bit more about each other. Yeah, works for me. Uh, and thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. For sure. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I started this project in November of 2015 and it was kind of born out of two main things. One was my time at Penn State. I was really involved as a student there. I was involved in a bunch of different clubs and activities. And so despite that being a campus of 40,000 people, it became very much like a home to me. I was always running into people that I knew on the streets or out of the bars and whatnot. And I really enjoyed that atmosphere. Uh, and then it was kind of taken away when I graduated and went out into the real world. So part of it was me wanting to recapture that sense of community. And then the other thing was I majored in finance in school, but I minored in accounting and entrepreneurship. And for me, like accounting and finance were the safe, secure route. Entrepreneurship was the dream. and I always felt like I could do my own thing and be successful in that. And so after going into finance, I did consulting for Deloitte. I kind of still felt inside of myself that I wanted to, to try my own path. And so taking that passion for entrepreneurship and that passion for community from Penn State, I kind of came up with this idea to try to meet 10,000 people. And I just thought it would put me on a really fun adventure that I with like modern day platforms like Instagram, that if people were interested in it, then I could turn that into my career as opposed to sitting behind a computer for the next 30 years. So yeah. we're on that journey still, seeing if we can make that work. Yeah, it's super relatable to me because I actually, so I went to school for documentary filmmaking. I graduated with a diploma and the recession hit. So it was sort of like, okay. a, what do you plan to do with your life now? And much like you, I fell into what was probably a safer, more secure route. I ended up in the tech space. I actually, um, I saw that you were at RJ Metrics at some point, and I used to work at yeah. um, a startup where one of our former VPs actually ended up going to RJ Metrics. And so when I saw you, when I saw your interview, just the concept alone of what you were doing really resonated with me because the whole reason that I started this podcast was to create more connection with people. Uh, the tagline that I have is, you know, this is a podcast designed to create connection, fuel compassion, and activate change. And so my goal is to talk to people who are going to have unique or and or hard conversations that people aren't having to try to build 
like you said, more community, partially for my own fulfillment, because again, like you, I really just love creating those relationships with people. I went to a much smaller school. Um, I went to Quinnipiac up in Connecticut, if you've ever heard of it. Our polls are very popular, <laughs> but okay. um, you know, I grew up in the same area. I I believe really close to where you did. I I lived in Bucks County, um, Doylestown area most of my life. So, um, were you in North Penn area? Is that where I think I? Saw? I was near. Yeah, that high school is like ten minutes from my house, but I grew up in Narstown. One of the things that really drew me to you and your mission was the fact that it's so bold, right? 10,000 people is a lot of people. And I didn't have the context necessarily around why that came to be, particularly with Penn State. I know plenty of people who went there, obviously, growing up in Pennsylvania, and I know what a large campus it is. And it's really cool to see how you transitioned something that really impacted you in your college years into adulthood, because making friends as an adult is arguably really challenging because you're not in all of these forced social situations. Like that's for me why I wanted to build more connection as well. So I, I'm glad to know that we have that in common. It makes me feel more like part of a community of people who also want the same thing, which is cool. Yeah. That's nice. So I'm kind of curious um, because I don't want it to turn into just like a full on interview. And I have just a ton of questions unrelated um, to just really yeah. diving into who we are as people. Do you have like a specific like, kind of starting point for people uh, since you don't usually, I guess, kind of meet them before you meet them, right? So is it, do you just kind of dive into a conversation, say, hi, I'm Rob. Hi, I'm Nikki. Let's go. <laughs> kind of. I mean, it's almost like, like us. Uh, it was very natural when we first talked, you know, yeah. they just like hump on the line and, and start talking about whatever. Um, I'm always curious, although it doesn't, I mean, maybe like 50% of the time, I'm just curious of how people found my project to begin with. Yeah. Because I'm always having so many conversations in DMs before I actually meet that person. And so for sure, I, ra I like rarely do any research on people before I meet them. Um, but when I meet people in person, it's always like, are you originally from this area? And then that kind of helps me build out the story of their life. Cause it's like, if you're not, then where are you from and how did you get here? Yeah. And if you are, have you always been here? Have you left? And if so, why? Yeah. Um, and what brought you back? I <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think now a lot of it has been like, how is the quarantine? where you are because over the last two months I've talked to people from like 40 different countries and like 25 different states and so I, I've wow. hit a lot of different geographical areas and joke. it might be more um more convenient at least from that perspective as far as being able to rally through various uh geographies but I'm sure that it doesn't really fit the bill when it comes to actually creating that connection in a three-dimensional realm <laughs> Yeah, it's much different. Um, and it's like funny, like here, my setup, I'm, we just moved into this place like a month and a half ago. So, and I'm moving out back to my parents in Philly in two weeks. And so my stuff, like my suitcase is unpacked and that's the printer. And so, uh, but I'm in a two bedroom apartment in Hoboken and like my window faces uh, a brick wall and so 
my light on my face is from a lamp. But today, um, one of the, the first guy that I talked to, like his window was behind him. And so he was backlit and I could barely like see his face and what yeah. he looked like. And those are just some of the struggles you deal with when you're connecting with people through technology as opposed to in person. It's like some of the experience is taken away, whether it's the backlit face or it's the connection is unstable and yeah. it goes out and they sound like a robot and you can't hear what they're saying. So yeah, it's a experience, but it has been awesome to really, ex- like the guy just got off of the phone with someone from Pakistan. That's um, so cool. So it, I move a lot uh, to a lot of different places now in this time. Yeah, that's really cool, especially because some of the people that I've been connecting with on Instagram, like you said, is a really great platform for just gaining exposure and not even from just purely a marketing standpoint, but having that visibility into people who are not locally near you. And I've connected with people from, I want to say Jordan was the one place that I was really surprised to hear a location from. And so I always say to people, part of why I want to do this is because I really believe that there is more that brings us together than that which separates us. And if we can highlight that and make people understand that this isn't me versus you, this isn't us versus them, we are all people. And the quarantine right now, obviously the pandemic being something that a lot of people are referring to as a great equalizer. I understand in many cases that it's not for obvious reasons as far as inequalities, but as far as just being human and having the emotions that go with this, in a lot of ways, I I believe we're all feeling very similar. And that inability to actually engage with people in person is challenging. I mean, I'm... I work from home typically for my day job anyhow, so that's not too much of a change for me. But if I wanted to go into the office or go to a restaurant or literally do anything that involves social interaction, I could go do it. And now it is trying to kind of augment the way our life is now with those genuine interactions. And it's not necessarily that it's unnatural uh, in the way the conversations flow, but it's definitely a little bit daunting when it comes to like, how are you going to relate to those people if you are building a relationship that you intend to continue after the fact? Because it's almost like we're all online dating at this point if we're meeting people. Like, what is it going to be like when I see you in person? Are we going to have the same dynamic? Will our conversations flow the same way? Do we have the same perspective on things once we're out of this weird bubble that we're in right now? Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And who knows when when we'll be able to go back and yeah, just see my roommates and I were just talking about this. It almost, it just seems weird because even if we start to see people gathering together, it's like you start to question like, well, why are you getting together? Like, is that safe? And yeah. <laughs> it makes makes me question when as a society we'll be comfortable with seeing each other interact again and be in large group settings. Cause I think over the last couple of months, we've become so conditioned to, I guess, fear that in, in a, a like an obviously rightful way. Like, yeah, protective, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you're trying to stop a pandemic, but um, yeah, it's just become something I think that we're so used to like not doing right now that it'll be, interesting to see when we get back to doing it comfortably 
Totally. And I wonder too, one of the things that has always been really fun for myself and my wife, we actually met um, in Philly at the TLA at an Adele concert before anybody knew who Adele was because she was playing at the TLA, which holds like a couple hundred people maybe. (laughs) And um, concerts are just so meaningful. They bring people together around music, which is just so universal to begin with. And I think that's where a lot of people who do maybe not think the same way can come together and have something that unifies them. And thinking about how live music, that scene's going to totally change sporting events. Like you said, when are we going to feel like it's lifted and we can resume our lives? Because going out and seeing people in masks all the time, I mean, we're wearing them too. So I'm out in Seattle and we got hit with like the big wave to begin with, right? You're in Hoboken, so you're near New York, you're getting a lot of it now. Um, So when it started, it felt very disarming, but now we're going to the grocery store and we have masks and people are wearing gloves and they have all these, you know, coverage for uh, the, for the cashiers and things like that. But when you can't see somebody's face, when you see like this, you see their, (laughs) their like eyes and forehead, it's, I can't decide how unsettling it is because Uh, some people have those masks that have like faces on them, which is just utterly alarming. And I'm like, I don't know if you're just an average person or if you're going to hold this place up. Right. And then the other piece of it, and I said this to my wife yesterday was, I think people are learning to smile with their eyes more because you're trying to like let people in without being able to show that typical sign of affection that you would show, or even just meeting people in person and being like, I'm going to stay a comfortable six feet away from you. It's just a very bizarre dynamic that changes the way that it will be in the future to your point. Like I don't see it being an all of a sudden, okay, this is lifted and we're going to get out there. We're going to be around people anymore. It feels like it's going to be a bit more challenging, like you said. So I'm excited and nervous for that, I guess, because I don't want to lose that feeling of comfort that we have around people, something that clearly drives you to do what you do. And, and I feel similarly drives me to do what I do. But I, you know, we're the people who are putting ourselves out there saying, meet us, talk to us, we want to hang out. And there's other people who are already sort of closed off. So I wonder what that's going to be like for them. Same. Yeah. And I think for the purposes of my project, even after social distancing and whatnot, and I'll probably still continue to be virtual or stay virtual for a bit past that because it's funny because my project used to be such a nice headline for people like oh, guys going around meeting people and now it's like that would be such a negative headline if it was yeah. like man <laughs> going true. around meeting 10,000 people in person it's like shoot I was not expecting that when I started They're like this, quarantine but... that guy get him out of there <laughs> yeah exactly so I've tried to like I stopped doing the project on March 11th, which was a couple of days before it really felt like everything started to hit the fan, at least here in the Northeast. Um, And then I think I'll have to go a little bit past. But fortunately for me, I still get to meet people and I don't think my audience minds if they see me next to that person in person or if they see me next to them virtually. Yeah, I I think think the concept resonates. The people who follow yeah, I think people are more so who follow me are interested in the stories of the people I'm meeting and not so much like how I'm meeting them or whatnot or the things that I 
uh, care more about, but that's, it's nice. Yeah. Well, so when you think about how this all came about for you, was there anything that you were afraid of in meeting other people? I, I thought about this when I was looking through just a ton of people that you've met already. Um, actually, how many people have you met already before you even go there? Do you, I'm sure you have a number. I think you are 3,396. That's a great number. <laughs> 3,396. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah. So that's crazy. And that's over the course of about five years. You were saying you started in 2015. Yeah. November will be five years. And then eight months after I started it, I took it full time. So this July will be four years oh, uh, cool. full time. Well, I have plenty of questions on that maybe offline. <laughs> I, but I kind of feel like as a female, I would be more apprehensive to be meeting just a bunch of random strangers. Do you think your gender plays into like your comfortability with being willing to just meet complete strangers or like, especially if you don't know a lot about them to begin with, like that to me is one of the prominent thoughts that I had. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, th I think like, obviously being like a straight white man doing this project there is like a bit of privilege to go out and not have to think about things that other people would have to think of I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think that that means other people of different genders or different races couldn't go out and do the same thing because I think at a point my credibility came from the number of people that I've met and not me as a person like in the beginning yeah it was easier but then people started to be like oh well he met my friend so i'll meet him or i saw him through this news thing so i'll meet him yeah um so it's like uh yeah there's there's both uh aspects to it but yes i mean i've driven across the country six different times and on each of those drives i've stayed with strangers in places like el paso salt lake city las vegas uh san diego uh, all, a lot of different places and I'm always aware uh, in those situations and also when I go out to meet people but I do think that it's uh, something that I think less about but I'm still aware at the same time and for my actual meetings with people a lot of times I'm meeting them in public places like coffee shops yeah. or a bar or something like that and so I think it's um, yeah like keeping your wits about you totally. um, and it's also a lot of times the people that I meet with are pre-qualified in a way where they found me through someone else that talked to me or something like that so yeah that makes yeah, sense just some, something I keep in mind but I don't think something that is always on my mind yeah so you said you drove cross-country um so six times so that's a lot um yeah. was that because you were meeting people across um, different places and it was just kind of part of the adventure to to go from point A to point B and meet people in between? So I was living in the Northern Liberties neighborhood of Philly when I started this project and the first year and a half were there and then uh, like I was laid off eight months into starting the project and then I had like 11 more months on my lease in Philly and so I finished out my lease in Philly and then when that ended I knew I couldn't afford to continue paying rent and doing this full time. And so I left Philly, like I put my stuff back in my parents in Norristown, but my roommate from Penn State had invited me to go stay with him in Long Beach, California. He had an extra bedroom. His apartment was 
like he could afford it on his own. So he just said, hey, if you want to come out here, I can host you and you can meet people on the West Coast. And my older brother had moved up to New York City and his car, which he had already paid off, was just sitting at our parents' place. So actually, no, it was with me in Philly. And I would just use it when I would go back and forth to visit my parents. And so I asked him if I could take that. And he said, yes. And so I, uh, it was really just a commute more than anything else to get from Philly to LA because I needed a car out in Los Angeles and I couldn't afford to fly out there and have the car shipped. And so the best option was to drive. And uh, it also just kind of made sense towards the storyline of what I'm doing that I would like stop in different cities and meet people. So I, yeah, I would like just plan out routes and see where I had friends in certain cities and stay with them. I had some hotel points left over from my consulting days. So I'd always book like a random cheap hotel, like outside of the city limits so I could stretch the points further. Yeah. Uh, and then I would stay with strangers uh, who like I would, it's funny because I think I road tripped much differently than a lot of other people would. Like I didn't know my route until the week before I was leaving or a few days before I was leaving. And sometimes the route changed in the middle of the trip. Um, but I would just throw up on Instagram my schedule and look for people to meet. And sometimes those people would host me. And so I would just stay with them in whatever city. That's super cool. What is the, what is the hardest part about doing what you're doing full time? The hardest part um, about doing it full time, I think for me is like the lack of stability. Uh, it's also, it's a, it's a pro and a con like, by doing this full time, like I'm 29, a lot of my friends have gotten married and they're settling down with their houses and their dogs and whatnot. And so, and I'm just so far away from that stage of life because I've chosen to put my time into this and do something that requires a little bit more freedom uh, for the time being. So I think it's that because there are some times where it'd be nice to have financial stability. Um, but in my situation, like I have to believe that that's going to come at some point and just continue to work towards it and enjoy the journey. Like it's very much having a lot of faith in yourself. And so sometimes it's, it feels like the pro like at the end of last year, when I was reached out to by the Kelly Clarkson show. And also in that time, like the New York post had written an article about me and CBS New York did a story that was getting spread around the country. And it's easy to do the project in those times. Uh, it's difficult to do it in the times when like the number of people who are following you starts dropping and stuff. And like the number of partnerships dries up because there's a pandemic and those types of things. Uh, yeah. It's like mentally you have to, in my situation, I like have to be prepared to do a year of this project or something like that with absolutely no growth. Um, but believing that the things that I'm doing now are going to play out like I'll be able to harvest them down the road. So I think it's like staying motivated in that sense. And then the reality of like making sacrifices and that some of those things that other people have, you don't get at least for the time being. Yeah, that's totally fair. I can understand that. I've been unemployed at points in my career prior to now a couple of times. And I think one of the biggest challenges is exactly what you're pointing out, which is having faith that it will turn up and that it will become what you want it to. And I think that your way of 
approaching it and acknowledging that that is part of the journey is something that we all have to try a little bit harder to do. It's not easy and it's super uncomfortable, which is the the hard reality behind it, right? It's very uncomfortable. Um, but if you're able to drive with your passion, then I see it becoming something really huge. And that's what you have to live for, right? Like that's the fulfillment factor. For sure. Yeah. And then it's like, I think at the point that it does work out, all of the, you forget the pain of what it was like. And so I, I think it all becomes worth it. It's just getting to that point. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of faith. And I would say going through the struggle has made me feel more like I will earn whatever does come to me. I would rather go down this path and be able to feel that way than to have just done it and it worked from the beginning and all these companies wanted to partner with me. Like, I don't think there's any like glory without the struggle in a way. I like that. That's mm-hmm. super relatable, I think, to a lot of people, especially right now, because there are so many artists, there's so many, you know, stylists, there's like any myriad of people right now who aren't getting the business that they would typically get. And it's going to be painstaking for a while, but there is this outcome that everybody's sort of anticipating, which is if you keep working at it while you're in a downturn, then you have the potential to really gain that much more momentum potentially when there is the uptick also. Like you don't dry up when everything else does. And that's the hardest part. At least for me, that's how I've been feeling. This is the most motivated I've been to do anything in a really long time. And it's nice. because I get to interact with people and, and learn more and, and hear their stories. And your story is something that is arguably one of the more relatable things that I've really been able to encounter especially because you're actually the first person that I'm interviewing that I don't know yet in some way, shape or form, whether it's a small way or a big way. And so like having this conversation with you for me is a milestone. You're really, to me, a level of inspiration for where I can get to as far as holding on to that hope and that desire and that need to create this life that you want and not something that's prescribed to you, which sounds like we sort of had that similar mindset growing up that this is like the path that I need to go down and this is the thing that I'm going to do and as long as I do that everything will be okay and it's like nobody told us that fulfillment was part of that nobody was like you got to make sure you feel really good when you're doing it you know and I think that that's a really big miss today that's something that we have to uncover on our own and to the detriment a little bit of the education system and focusing so much on like, this is the hard and fast way that things are done. Do it this way, follow your path, get there, move forward, you know, and you get so caught up in the rhythm of what you're expected to do that you start to lose sight of what you actually care about and want to do. And sometimes those dovetail, but not always. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. (laughs) And also it just is reminding me, I'm listening to this podcast called the happiness lab where they talk about the science behind happiness. And oh, that's cool. I haven't heard of that one yet. It's cool. It's like a, this Yale professor who's you know, just talking like scientifically what makes people happy and um, talking about people losing sight of like what they truly want to do. And also like in the podcast, they talk about the fact that people sometimes don't, they think they want things that don't actually serve them. Like money is a really good example, right? I guess the main example and they were talking about how like people think that they want so much money to be comfortable and stuff. And 
then people who get a lot of money are really sad because they can't relate to the all the people around them who don't have it and it like puts them in this weird position and so I've tried to to think about that in my life too like what do I want in life or what do I want from this project and I always say like I want a house no bigger than the one that I grew up in or like a modest car and just a wife and kids and the time to be able to invest into hanging out with them. Um, And just, I think for me, a big thing is relatability. Being able to relate to the most amount of people I think is cooler than having the most money because then you actually get to enjoy things with people as opposed to just having like this thing that people aspire to that doesn't connect you. That's a really beautiful sentiment. I couldn't agree more. I feel very similarly as far as, you know, I don't need the mega mansion and the yacht and all the things. I There's a level of comfort that I would like to achieve financially. So to your point, I don't have to think about it. Like that's sort of the threshold for me is I just need enough money that I don't have to worry about having money. That's like the dream. <laughs> and, and it doesn't need to be in excess. And those relationships that we build over the years in our lives are just so foundational. I've said to people I even work with today that my dream is not to create, you know, a legacy that I need to be micromanaging a company of millions of people being, you know, one of the richest humans in the world. Like that doesn't interest me at all. I work in software. And so for a while I felt like, okay, well then maybe I'll just work with some friends and build an app and then we'll cash out on the app and then that'll be the pile of money that we we live from and that'll be great and that's all I'll need. And the more I thought about that and I've, you know, I've kicked off some ideas, I've had some LLCs, they just haven't been as invested in them emotionally because I didn't feel connected to it. It felt like I'm trying to get money at the end of this. It didn't feel like I'm trying to create something that I feel, I mean, obviously I want to feel proud of, but something that I feel like really connected to or fulfilled by. And when it, like you can solve somebody's problem and you can make money from solving that problem, but it doesn't necessarily mean that solving that problem gave you some greater experience or good or feeling. Uh, And when I really think about my own experience, like I would rather know that when my time comes and I'm no longer here, that people can look back and say, I appreciate the relationship that we had, whether, you know, it was professional or personal or, or familial, there's something there that I want people to be able to say, yeah, this was a good person who had good intentions. And I want to be able to look at people and say the same thing. We're not perfect. Nobody's going to get it all right. Some people suck sometimes. I'm one of them. You know, we all have our moments, but when we set that aside and allow ourselves to see each other for who we are genuinely, there's just a really different dynamic that happens. And, and that power dynamic that you're talking about with money is so, so much what drives society today. You, you pull in all these people who are relatively like-minded thinkers and you start to ask yourself, like, why aren't these the people in charge? These are the people we want to be leading us in the direction of a greater good for humanity and not focusing on what, what is that dollar sign? How do we get one more penny out of these people? Because I'm a firm believer that if you do the right things, the rest will come. Similar to how you described your own journey, I feel like at a macro level, that also applies. For sure. No, I totally agree with that. I don't know. What's, uh, what else is on your plate since we're, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants here, Rob? <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, well, I'm curious. I just w- was curious earlier 
Who is the VP that went to RJ from your company? Mike Shankman. Oh, yeah. Did you the know Mike? Finance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. He, um, yeah, he and I work together at a company now called Phenom, uh, but previously I'm a mentist and I was there before the name changed. So I was there very early on and, and we parted ways, I think, roughly the same time. So I actually worked with his sister then at my following job. So I, I knew them pretty well. Nice. And um, yeah, so were you, you were at RJ Metrics and then you just dove right into this. Uh, yes, I, I started this uh, while I was there and then went into this after they were bought out because I was laid off and they were bought out. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, yeah. That was Magento, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, but it was good. That's great, though, that you had the opportunity to commit to this full time. Was that a hard decision for you to make to actually say, like, I'm going to I'm going to put it on the line and this is where I'm going to go with it? No, surprisingly not. And that I, makes me I, happy. <laughs> I think that's just something I've learned about my personality. Like I make big life decisions, I guess, career wise on a whim or like, I don't know, I guess I just trust myself because when I was at Deloitte, the program that I was in, I was a strategy and operations consultant for them. And you do two years as an analyst and then one as a consultant and then you go get your MBA full time and then they pay for it. So you commit two years back to the firm. Okay. But it's like a hard program to get into. And then they're like one of the only companies that I know of that is covering the full cost of MBAs. And I, from our days of them, like going to the firm and seeing if that was where we wanted to commit to, they would show the schools that their, uh, that their people went to for their MBAs. And it was like Columbia, UVA, Wharton, Harvard. And so that seemed like a really attractive thing. And I thought for sure that I was going to go down that path. But when I heard about RJ metrics through a consultant that I worked with on a project in Kentucky, I learned more about it. And like the data analytics space was really interesting at the time. And it kind of satisfied that entrepreneurship bug within me. Um, and I remember like I, I had to pay $5,000 to Deloitte to leave because that was part of a bonus that I would only get to keep if I stayed there for two years and it was only a year and three months. Oh, it's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to pay $5,000 to leave, to take a pay cut, to go to this risky tech startup. And for me, it was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, it seemed to pl play out well enough for you that you're, that you are self-employed at this point. Uh, you know, you mentioned some of the challenges with where we're at today in, in the economy, obviously playing a role in that, but it's, it sounds like you've sort of always had in mind that you needed to get to kind of take the next thing to figure out where that's going to lead you. Yeah. And I think people, I think people see those types of decisions as more black and white than they actually are. Like someone might look at me and be like, left everything, like put everything on the line to go into this project full time. But in reality, it's like, I decided to do this full time and if it didn't go well in those first couple of months, I would have interviewed back at Deloitte and said, hey, I took a chance to go to this tech startup. I started my own project. Here's what I learned by interacting with all these people. And here's how I can apply it back to the firm. And I have experience with working here before. So it's like, I think when people think of you going into your own thing full time, they feel like every other option is removed from the table. But those are all still there as fallbacks. And I'm lucky to have had 
a good education and a good start to my career and also a support system where I've always felt like rock bottom had a big pillow on top of it where if I got even still like if I ran completely out of money which has come close a couple of times in the project I got over the fact that that was something that I should be afraid of obviously it's uncomfortable but if I if I ran out of money today that I could put out a GoFundMe and be like, hey, if you followed my project, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I have ran out of money. If you could help me for a month or so, I'm sure some people would contribute to that. Or yeah. if I had to put out a story, hey, I ran out of money. If anyone has a part-time job or a full-time opportunity, they could connect me with. Like I have a network as an option as well. Yeah. You or, have probably arguably one of the bigger networks <laughs> than, than people have. So that's a, that has to be a bonus. And I think speaks to the effectiveness of what you're doing too, is that beyond just creating those personal connections, these are supporters of the business that you're, you're running essentially. Right. I, it's hard because it's a project, but it's also, I mean, it is foundationally like this is your, this is your job. This is what you're doing to, to create a livelihood for yourself. Correct. Like, so there is some yes. parallels between like I'm meeting people with no intention, but if it so happens that down the line, they can become a resource or an opportunity, then that's really just all for the better. And I think validates what you've been doing and why it's important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think of that with every connection. It's like, I'm happy to meet with people, whether they turn into someone that like takes me into like something that can turn the project into the next level, or if we just get to meet and chat. And I think because I authentically believe in that and, and show up for people like that, that that's how those things work. It's like, I don't know, because I think sometimes people do things authentically but then it's like when it really comes down to being authentic, it's like, oh, well, actually, I wanted something out of it. And so totally, um, I feel like for me, like I've always understood and lived that way that I am going to meet people, whether it turns into something or not. I'm just very curious to see what happens. And I can say from my project, like the fact that I have had partnerships and that it has been covered by some bigger press sources like if I'm looking at the data of it, it's trending in what seems to be a direction where it will be able to stabilize at some point. Uh, but I just don't know. It's kind of going into the darkness and hoping. Yeah. It's a bit ambiguous right now, but I think most entrepreneurs feel that way. I wouldn't have fancied myself an entrepreneur prior to becoming an adult in the real world, but I realized very quickly that I should not be working for other people. I just don't really vibe with the corporate concept. I think it's a bit antiquated, necessary in some ways, absolutely. I mean, companies are able to provide us with a lot of resources now that we wouldn't have otherwise given the pandemic, but I also feel really strongly that there's so much value in the smaller business space because you it is more intimate and you do get to know people more personally and everybody doesn't feel as disposable. Yeah. When, when I think about how we grow as people in with that context like it's not easy to feel like you're starting something new and that you can't really chart your path but like you said it is the journey and it's figuring out like what are the good things what are the bad things about what's happening right now how do you become this version of yourself that you want to be and i think one of the questions that i has been sort of floating through my mind as we've been talking is 
what do you feel has really come out of this for you personally more than anything else? Like, is it just getting to know people who are so different and having that worldview? Or is there like a specific moment that resonates with you as sort of like, this is like just a monumental moment for me in meeting somebody and having a new perspective? Um, I think it's like both to an extent. Um, it's because every person I meet with changes my life in some way or another. Like it might just be so, like, sometimes I'll meet with someone, for example, I met this, uh, I met this guy the other week and he is in high school and we were talking about music and I was like, what is popular amongst high schoolers right now? And he told me about this artist called No Name. And so I looked that artist up and then there's a song that she has that I ended up really liking. And so now I've been listening to it. So like my life in a way was altered just by that conversation with him. And it might just be that I listened to that song for two weeks and then I forget about it. Or it might be something that I listened to and years down the road, I'm still listening to it, but like I wouldn't have found it if it wasn't for him. And so when that happens like in trivial ways like that, or I met a girl a few weeks ago who was the victim of a mass shooting in Serbia and she was shot seven times and went into a coma and oh my gosh. in her coma, they had to amputate her leg and, and she had nerve damage in her arm. And so hearing her story changed my life in a way where it helped me understand what I should and should not consider to be a problem. Like being in a quarantine and, and being stressed about partnerships when you have a big support system and stuff is not that bad. Yeah. Getting shot seven times and losing your leg is like and even she might be like it's not that bad but it's it's much worse than like sitting home with the comforts of Netflix and stuff and so uh, talking to people has given me a lot of reference points for my life as to what I should and should not be grateful for actually I don't think about what I should not be grateful for but it just makes you think about what you should be grateful for and I think when you understand what the spectrum of life is and where you fit on it then you start to be like, oh, I have this. This person doesn't have this. I thought everyone yeah. had this and things like that. And then, um, and doing the project has just changed my, I mean, it's leading the direction of my life. Like I never intended to live in Los Angeles, but I went out there because I had a friend who was willing to host me and I ended up staying there for over three different periods of time, a year and three months. And so now I have a network of like 700 people in Los Angeles and I feel very comfortable in that city yeah and same here in like the new york city area i have like a network of probably like 400 people here and it's um i feel very comfortable in this environment so and like these are just opportunities that have popped up because i started the project like my friend was willing to host me there and now i had a friend who was willing to host me here and so sometimes i'm just following the lead of it yeah well it's like where's life flowing and just going with it and letting yes. that happen i've become much more of a believer in that mentality that you should just kind of follow it as opposed to trying to resist it or construct it too firmly because frankly it leads to disappointment a lot of the time because we anticipate something that will never be or could never be and not because we're not trying, but I just think there's 99% of the time you're going to have a wrench thrown in your plan. And so what do you do when that wrench is thrown in there? I mean, 
when you were speaking about the woman that you spoke to who who had been shot and in the coma, you know, it really resonates because I've had a a tremendous amount of trauma in the last year that has sort of unfolded um, with my wife and I, and there have been just a multitude of things that have come out of that where it started, this is like a really hard reveal for me, but it started with um, last March, she was sexually assaulted and I found her and I was in the bar on the other side of the wall and like I had no idea what was happening. And there's this reality that just all of a sudden clicked for me about like what is important and what is not. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus had a quote on uh, Dax Shepard's podcast that I just, I, I can't forget, which was she had, I think, gotten nominated and won the Emmy the night before she found out that she had breast cancer. And she said, when you experience true fear, that's when you are able to understand what's truly precious in life. And it's not money and it's not the things that you have. It's really these experiences that you are like entrenched in and those people that get you through it. And when you described, you know, rock bottom as having a pillow on top of it, I I like that because I, I agree. It's something that you have to be open to share these experiences that haunt you, that hurt you, that create joy, that create pain, because by sharing that, we're able to create more understanding and more compassion in this world. And that's like, that was like the tip of the iceberg. The following 11 months were also like a myriad of crazy things that like I couldn't even begin to describe. And when it all sort of tied up, uh, my wife and I have both been going to therapy and I talk about this a lot on my podcast because it is super transformative when you start to not only reference the perspective that you gain from other people, but also reflect it back onto yourself and ask, you know, why is it that I think this way? Am I thinking about this with the most context? Should I have more context to formulate my opinion on this or how I feel about it? And then also learning how to heal from those things. Um, The fact that this woman was willing to share her story with you, that's part of healing. That's sharing something that is so, so personal and so painful. But she's saying, like, I want other people to understand. I want people to see me for who I am and what I've been through doesn't define me. But it's also something that creates a better sense of humanity that like it's all relative right like being um unemployed and not having money is stressful as shit i've been there like way too many times but you also have to think about okay there's other people going through these types of things and acknowledging that one isn't necessarily more than the other it's all relative to our perspective and trying not to minimize how we feel, even if that relativity makes it seem like that person's thing's so much bigger, how could I possibly be complaining about this? You can't be like, well, because I could be getting shot today. Like there, you know, like it's trying to kind of find that balance in your own mind about like, where do you put the priority on that perspective in a given moment? Is sort of how I see it. Like if it's the moment that you're living right now and you need to feel what you're feeling, feel it, but also, pause and give yourself a chance to see that maybe it isn't as bad as you thought, or that if you know these things about other people, there are ways that you can help them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I wanted to ask, I don't know if you share your background on your podcast, but uh, I'm happy to, this is what makes it a unique episode also. Yeah. So I know you're from Bucks County. You went to Quinnipiac 
in Connecticut. Yep. And then at some point you made your way to Seattle. You did. Uh, but what, like, what has been your path? Where did you go to high school? What did you study in college? Where did you go after that? How did you end up in Seattle? And then yeah. how did you start this podcast? So I went to school at Central Bucks West. So, okay. Um, yes. th- then I went to Quinnipiac. I went with the goal of um, being a film editor. I wanted to specialize in documentary filmmaking because I really love telling people's stories. I've always really gravitated towards just nonfiction, more human stories even just as a kid I used to read biographies all the time like I mean a young child I'd have like children's versions of like Helen Keller Thomas Edison like whatever Harry Houdini like I just remember being so excited to learn about people and have facts as opposed to fiction Um, and then so when I was in school I had interned you know I had a plan to go down that path and I had done some nonprofit work with um, some professors from Yale and some other organizations in New Haven for helping people um, who are in rehabilitation for uh, for drug abuse and and mental issues, uh, mental health issues. So that was something that you know I became really passionate about. But like I said, you know I was handed my diploma and the housing market crashed, and they were like, "Good luck with your lives. You've just spent a fortune on an education that's virtually useless." <laughs> and, yeah. Um, so I remember at the time before when I was still in school saying to my parents that, you know, I want to, I want to be a filmmaker. And my mom said, who was in media for quite some time, actually, she's from New York and she lived in Manhattan during the seventies. There's stories that I will never know. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, absolutely not. (laughs) Uh, so when I told her that she said, you know, I, I applaud it and I'm glad that you're doing something that you love, but it's just, it's not going to most likely be the most financially stable thing that you can do. And I was like, I don't care if like, I don't have any money if I'm living in a box, as long as I'm doing what I love, then cue like the economy crashing and me having no job and like no prospects at the time. And I was like, so that was wrong. I don't think I'd be okay with that. Um, hence my like standard of living does need to be a ton of money. Just want to make sure we don't have to think about it. Uh, and then, so when I, uh, I sort of fell ass backwards into technology because I had been using so much software and technology to do filmmaking and editing that um, at the time it was still on CD-ROMs. It was like Final Cut Pro and like a 10 pound box of discs and books on how to use it and hours and hours in editing bays. And when I came out of that experience and the tech boom was just really starting to happen again, particularly around mobile, I had a couple of jobs in between, nothing super notable, but one that really for me became just such an obvious point of transition for me was I was working at a company in King of Prussia that had been an ad agency and they started to transition all of the work to, uh, to overseas. And we were becoming more of a call center, which is sort of like the inverse of what you usually see happen. So when I, and I literally had to punch a clock. And I just remember this feeling of just like, ugh, I can't do this. I'm like not connecting with people. There's nothing strategic about this. There's nothing that's like making me want to wake up every day. And so I ended up getting into the mobile tech space when I started a job at Career Builder, intended to be like a marketing position, but turned into a product management role. And that sort of was like the rest of the story for me as far as the trajectory of my career. It was really, sorry. It was really focusing on what are the things that I want to do in technology and helping 
it, for, in a way it felt philanthropic to me because it's helping people find jobs and I was unemployed for a period of time. So it felt like very relatable to me and I wanted to help people um, by creating better technology and like the iPhone had just sort of started to make headway at that point. So it was all really new and the experience obviously on a smartphone is so much different than a desktop and more personal to people. I had the opportunity to leave there. I went to the startup that I discussed earlier, who actually was like our vendor for Career Builder at the time. And so I was there for a couple of years and I was getting sort of pigeonholed into a customer success role. And it wasn't, again, strategic enough for me. It was very reactive. I, I transitioned out of that role and I had another one that was sort of just a stepping stone intermittent thing and ended up going to a digital agency, which speaking of people meeting and kind of the diversity of people, they were headquartered in Greece. And so I had the opportunity to travel there quite a bit and stay there for like three weeks one summer and really not only get to know the people there, but the culture and feel just really integrated in that life. I had actually studied abroad in college as well, um, which is probably surprising that I didn't just say that because everybody I know jokes around with me that that's like all I mention. Okay. <laughs> so when I, when I spent a semester in Italy, like that really opened my eyes to the world and made me feel like there's so much more for me out there. And there's so many more people and things that I don't understand that I want to know about. And so when I came back, that became just such a, a point of hyper focus for me where how can I continue to, similar to you, actually, I think I'm kind of having a revelation right now. It's like a therapy session. It's like, I wanted to recreate that feeling of connectedness and understanding that it's not just about even feeling only connected to people, but like, what are the things that I'm doing? And am I being intentional about these things? Like the way food tastes is better. I cooked more. I did these things more habitually just because the environment in Italy allowed me to do that. And I felt like that rebooted a lot when I spent time in Greece. And so before um, that time came to an end, I was let go. I had about six months of time to spare and see what I was going to do with my life. And um, when I lost that job, everybody, my wife, my mother, and my best friends all said to me, fight the urge you have to fix this problem right away, because I know what you want to do is turn around and go get another job because you don't want to panic because you know what it's like to be unemployed. <laughs> and I was like, yes, exactly. And so I ended up taking a road trip from... Philly to Florida by myself. My wife is super, super supportive. She was like, go do your thing, regroup, find yourself and come back with a better idea of what it is that you want to do. And if that requires a stopgap to be at a corporate job again, that's what it is. But at least you sort of have a point of focus that you can go towards. And so when I did that, I drove from Philly to Maryland, met up with one of my friends, then North Carolina, stayed with some other friends there. And then I stayed in Savannah for a night by myself, um, similar to you on the outskirts, trying to like spread my, <laughs> spread my time and money properly. And I met some just really interesting people there while I was hanging out by myself at a, at a restaurant. And that was a pretty uncomfortable thing for me because even though I love meeting people, I loathe nothing more than not knowing anyone and walking into a room and being like, okay, like, am I going to have to interact with these people? And what's it going to be like? And I spent a lot of time growing up also being bullied. So I, there's definitely this fear of rejection where it's like, I walk into a room and I'm already like, I think I know what they're thinking about me. And so I'm trying to get better at that. But 
by the time that all sort of wrapped up and I was, I headed to Florida, uh, stayed with some friends there, had some period of self-discovery and just calm that I was able to get to because I love the beach and that's just like my place to be when I need to, to think. And came back up, went through Charleston. And that was incredible too, because I actually got to see a friend of mine I hadn't seen in 10 years who actually joined the Coast Guard since we, um, since we left college and she and I were in school for the same thing. So it was really interesting to see how her story had changed. And then I came home and I remember sitting in my car, calling my mom to let her know I had gotten back and having her say to me, Nikki, when when we're not here anymore, like nobody thinks to themselves, I wish I would have worked more. And I thought that that just since then has resonated so much with me, um, with the exception of maybe if this becomes my full work, then, you know, yeah, I would love to work more. But I, you know, breaking yourself and feeling so disconnected from who you are for a job is the worst possible feeling in the world. And I've had it more than once. And so I spent the next couple of months after that trying to create anything, any opportunity. But I, but I do feel like I learned a lot from that because we had an unsuccessful crowdfund and there were things that, you know, you need to think about after the fact and, and look on and say, okay, how can I do this better next time? And when I finally reset, I had basically had a job offer on the table in Pennsylvania in Plymouth meeting actually. And I wasn't super thrilled about it, but I was, running out of time and I needed a paycheck again. Like I just purchased a house with the mindset of, well, I guess I'm not going to move to the West coast. Like I had always hoped, I guess I'm just going to, I guess it's just going to be what it is. And I'm, and we're going to live here. And then I got a call from my current employer and basically said to Holly, my wife, I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to interview. I don't know that I expect anything to come of it, but like worst case scenario, free trip to Seattle and I've never been. So cool. Let's do it. And I went and the interview went well. And within two days I had an offer and I had to say, okay, so you want to like wing it and move to Seattle with me and we can go on a housing visit. And she said, if you're going, I'm going, I don't need to go see it. If you think it's a good place for us to live, then then let's go and let's be there. And so we basically just up and left um, a little less than three years ago and honestly haven't really looked back since, even despite like the last year that I described, thinking about that more circumstantially and less about like where we are and thinking about the relationships that we've built here and even just coming into my own experience here has been really amazing because I'm opening up a lot more to connecting with people because I'm finally comfortable with myself and able to have dialogues that are less predicated on that feeling of anxiety that I was describing when meeting new people and more about just, like you said, what is that authentic connection between people? And maybe it's not there all the time, or maybe it's not a good vibe. We don't have to always have that, but it's definitely given me a a stronger sense of self and a desire to create something that really builds those relationships out. And I had been blogging for about a year. And some of the more recent posts that I'd written were about the event that I mentioned. And when I came away from that, I just started thinking, gosh, I really want to engage with people. I don't want to just be telling people about my life. I 
I like sharing it. I appreciate that we're having this dialogue now. I actually had a friend of mine ask me, are you going to have people interview you on your podcast or ask you questions? And I was like, absolutely, let's do it. So Mm -hmm. thanks for leading the way on that one, Rob. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so that's all a lot of words just to say, you know, I started this because I, I realized that it's always been important for me to communicate and connect with people coming at it from sort of a one-way street where you're blogging and, and really you need people to engage with that felt too impersonal. And I really just wanted to hear more about other people and be able to, you know, parlay certain elements of my life into those discussions, but have somebody else's story driving the conversation, because I think that it's just really important that we share those things about us uh, for whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. You know, it's, not easy to be who you are in a world that's constantly telling you who you should be. And I want people to feel safe and comfortable having conversations with me. And hopefully when they leave the conversation, feeling like they have something that they can feel more comfortable with or share with the world more openly. Nice. And how long have you um, run the podcast then? I think I started it in September or August of last year, and I hadn't been producing as much content. I was maybe like one every month, month and a half, just for time commitment's sake. Yeah. And and then when this pandemic started, I had already constructed a list of nearly 100 people to talk to, most of whom I could secure as soon as I say, like, give me a date and a time. Mm-hmm. And the issue that I face is more time to produce than it is actually recording and trying to make sure that if I record a lot upfront, that the content doesn't become stale and then okay. sort of irrelevant. So I'm still sort of trying to strike that balance. Like I rapid fire recorded a handful of these and then I was like, okay, we're going to get those out. And I'm releasing every two weeks now because I don't have the bandwidth with my full-time job to be able to produce every week right now, but that would be the, that would be the ideal scenario. Are you still in the tech world when it comes to employment? Yeah. So, um, I currently work creating software solutions for, uh, an enterprise company that I don't mention on my podcast. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a, it's been a, a journey and I do actually feel like despite the fact that I'm not huge on the whole corporate mindset of things. I have a really great boss and team that make going to work fun and interesting. So it feels like if I have to split my time, I'm in the ideal scenario to be able to split my time with a group of people that I really love and respect and challenge me professionally and also translate that into, you know, feelings of connection that can become something for the podcast. Like I've actually interviewed one of my coworkers um, and have a couple more of them on the list to talk to. One of the episodes with my friend Dustin about coming out, he and I are actually coworkers and we've known each other for years, but just recently started working together. And every time we're in a meeting now, he and my other friends, <clears throat> excuse me, who listen to the podcast are promoting it shamelessly for me. I guess maybe a little context on why the name might also be helpful because I started the blog with the concept of who the fuck am I? Like just a, I want to write to discover myself and go deeper into that. And then when I wanted to translate that into a podcast, I wanted it to just be who the fuck, like, who the fuck are you? Who the fuck am I? Like, mm-hmm. I curse a decent amount. It's explicit, but yeah. <laughs> I try to, I try to contain it a little bit more on the podcast 
than I do in my regular daily life. But I liked it because it also, I think, has that intention of being bold and drawing people in and also saying, you know, while at first glance, it might seem to be something profane and inappropriate. It's actually something that's really about uniting people and having, you know, like authentic conversations. The the it's inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. That's the the goal, right? Like trying to ask questions, understand each other, and not feel bad about it. Just have the hard conversations. What happens if we don't? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, oh, and then I wanted to ask, as like a cap to everything, how. Um, do you plan to go into documentary filmmaking still or do you think that you have found like that type of fulfillment through this path yeah that's a really great question rob i am torn i think that this is something that is really fun to do and i started it joking around with my friends that if there's anything i should get paid to do it's talking because i never shut up so uh, anybody i know will attest to that particularly family. (laughs) And at the same time, I do still really have a strong passion for telling other people's stories with that visual component to it. I'm thinking that one of the things that I want to do to try to sort of transition into that maybe from the podcast is starting to do more video content. This is a great, you know, jumping off point for that, I think, virtually speaking, but especially when I am able to have more in-person interviews again. The the dream I think still exists, maybe not for a full-time job to be a documentary filmmaker, but I'd love to be involved in some projects surrounding that because I think that's how you get people invested in each other. And the visual component is, is really important for that. I think it's super valuable to be able to see people as well as hear from them. Nice. Yeah. And I, I can, I feel that with the way that I've been doing my project recently too, with adding those clips in. So yeah, it's really sense. cool to it's really cool to see the process that you've gone through and and use it sort of as like a frame of reference for myself. Uh, to be honest, I I really am grateful that you you have this so that I can see it and understand a little bit more about your approach. And I know that we're a little over our hour, but I did want to ask one more question out of for sure. curiosity slash obligation, because I don't feel like I would be a good spouse if I didn't ask. What is okay. Kelly Clarkson like? Is she as nice as everybody <laughs> says she is? <laughs> she is. I, so my experience, I didn't meet her until I went out onto the stage to do my piece with her. Yeah. So I feel like I blacked out through the experience. Um, <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. Yeah. Because it was a lot of pressure of that was the first time that I was going to be on national TV in the, in the States. And I, I think still is like the only time that I've been on national TV. Um, and yeah, it like I walked out and I introduced myself to Joe Coy and Jane Lynch and Kelly. And, um, was it surreal? Just totally surreal. It was. I can, are you Catholic? I, I, yeah. I grew up Catholic for sure. <laughs> I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, it kind of felt like the day of like Holy Communion, or like the day of confirmation where you're like, I know this is a special day, you know? Uh, so it was that type of experience where, I don't know, for me, it was like also very special because the audience was made up of people that I'd met. And so in, it was like, was it all people that you had met or were there like, handfuls of people there? Uh, it was like, the audience is probably like a hundred people, probably like 90 of them were people that I met. The goal wow. was for, for all of them to be people that I met, but 
some people had to drop out last minute because of work and whatnot. And so that's crazy they, though, that they, they actually catered it to like the audience of people that know you. Yeah. So in a way it felt like the episode was kind of built around like that was the stick of that particular episode was like this guy's meeting 10,000 people oh by the way this audience is all people he's met and so to walk out onto the stage and to like see all of those familiar faces and people who took time out of their day to come was really cool yeah um and then Kelly was yeah like I don't know I I was excited to meet her but I she's not as big a part of my life and so I maybe didn't put her as high. Uh, no, that's, that's totally <laughs> valid. I was curious because I mean, you, you hear even just um, celebrities on the show saying like, oh gosh, you're just so down to earth. You're so real. But it was one of those things too, where I can understand like where you're coming from, where it's like, oh my gosh, just a sea of people, faces that y- you personally know. And then to be in an environment surrounded by, you know, Jane Lynch, Joe Coy and Kelly Clarkson. Like, I mean, that's just a really big moment for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, she was very down to earth, like us talking because we talked in between the segments. Like they interviewed me about my project and then we did like a thing where they had me point out people that, or talk about the people that I'd met. And in between those things, like she and I were just talking and it was no different than you and I talking right now. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. That's sort of what you hope, I think, when you meet people who are in the public eye is that they still have that raw human reality to them. Yes. She and I have met people who like through my project who were like big in in a way and like their small niche thing. And like you can tell sometimes people treat you like they're doing you a favor being in your presence. And she was not that way at all. She was like I felt like she genuinely wanted to get to know me. That's super cool. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm glad that you shared that with me and I can re- uh, relay that positive experience. Yeah, so. of course. Um, well, Rob, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for going a little bit over with me. It's for been sure. super fun to chat. I would love to stay connected and maybe just even talk offline a little bit more about kind of your journey and, and what you're going through um, person yeah. to person as I'm sort of exploring mine. So if you're down for that, I would love to chat more. Yeah. Cool. Well, good luck with your move. Hopefully everything goes swimmingly. I also hope that everybody around you stays well during this crazy time. And I'm excited to share this with people. So um, we'll connect again and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, Rob. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. A big thank you to Rob for sharing his story and his time. If you'd like to meet Rob, shoot him a DM on Instagram at robs10kfriends or visit robs10kfriends.com. Plus, don't forget to visit whothefck.com slash donate to support Penn State Thon and help fight the battle against childhood cancer. And if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred streaming platform. And if you like what you hear, feel free to rate the show while you're at it. Until next time. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed.
Oh, welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that my name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.